You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Thursday, August 20, 2020, as we head into market close London time. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York, joined shortly by Real Vision Creative Studios Managing Editor Roger Hurst. But first, Peter Cooper with the day's stories. Thanks, Ash. The European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, the Bank of England, and the Swiss National Bank have all announced today that they will be scaling back their U.S. dollar liquidity operations due to, quote, continuing improvements in U.S. dollar funding conditions and the low demand, end quote. This is the second time the central banks have cut back. Now, instead of offering swap lines for short-term dollar funding three times a week, it will be cut back to once a week. The Fed had reinstated the swap lines with several central banks in March to ease liquidity constraints globally after a surge in demand for dollars. The amount outstanding has tapered off since June. While liquidity conditions have stabilized in developed and emerging economies, the macro outlook remains highly uncertain. And mixed data is keeping everyone on edge, including the Fed. Today, the U.S. initial jobless claims experienced an increase to 1.1 million, seasonally adjusted. This increase was above the estimates of 920,000 for initial claims. Non-seasonally adjusted numbers also show an increase to 891,510. However, continuing claims dropped to 14.8 million, seasonally adjusted. The estimate was 15 million. Pandemic Unemployment Assistance, a program for those who don't typically qualify for unemployment, such as self-employed persons, rose to 542,797. Most states have a maximum of 26 weeks to receive unemployment, but some states grant fewer weeks than that. For those who have exhausted their regular benefits, they can apply for Pandemic Emergency Unemployment Compensation, which grants them an additional 13 weeks of jobless benefits. As of August 1st, 1.3 million people have claimed benefits in this program. Yesterday, the FOMC minutes for the July 28th to 29th meeting were released, and it reiterated their commitment to continuing their course for easing monetary policy for the time being without any clear indications of when and how they might deploy more tools to support the economy. Fed officials believed that more government support would be necessary in order to prevent a more painful, drawn-out recession. In addition to fiscal support dimming, officials are also concerned about growth disruption both domestically and abroad, as well as tightening credit markets. They also cited the long-term effects of, quote, possible restructuring in some sectors of the economy that could slow the growth of the economy's productive capacity for some time, end quote signaling concern over economic stagnation. No yield curve control was implemented, and very little new action has taken place. At the moment, the Fed is keeping their options open, watching for any sort of disruptions and deliberating on what might be their next move. The FOMC will meet again on September 15th through 16th. And with that, I'll hand it back to you, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks, Peter. Welcome back, Roger. Two days in a row. Yeah, good to be here again. We get to go even deeper into the weeds. So, Roger, what are you looking at as we head into close London time? 
Um, the yeah, we talked about it yesterday in terms of the impact that the euro is now having on on European equities. And again, I think today we saw a little bit of that. Now I know we've had a little bit of a bounce in the dollar, but the European equities down one one and a half percent. Whereas as the European market is coming towards the close here, once again, Nasdaq dragging the U.S. market back into uh, flat territory. In fact, Nasdaq back up. And we talked yesterday. And you said, you know, what do I think will happen? And you know, the the story in the U.S. should continue as it has done, unless we find a new catalyst to change things around, which is basically that the tech continues to outperform, the U.S. continues to outperform, and maybe that gets given an extra shot in the arm if um, the euro continues to strengthen. But as I mentioned yesterday, it's a euro story, not a dollar story, and it's starting to hurt Europe. And I think that's going to you know allow or it's going to create um, a little bit of a stir within the the sort of the corridors of the east. TB, and I think they're going to start taking notice, as I do think the Bank of Japan will take notice if dollar-yen falls to that uh, 105 level. Roger, talking about central bank uh, policy action, big news yesterday. Uh, we are actually filming London time, so we didn't get to talk about Fed minutes uh, released from the July meeting. Uh, what were your thoughts on those minutes? So overall, I mean, they, they sort of sounded a little bit more um, negative about the growth prospect. But they said things like, you know, yield curve control is not coming. And, and I, I was saying yesterday, expect yield curve control to come along. And what is yield curve control? It's effectively where they try and manufacture the level of yields across the yield curve. So, for instance, if you thought yields were going to get too high and cause problems to the market, they will come in and buy more bonds to keep those yields low. In Japan, it's actually been the opposite. They wanted to keep those yields from going down too much um, because obviously that was impairing the banking um, sector. But it's basically exerting control. Now, they said they're not going to do it, but um, how many times have we heard the Fed say, oh, we're not going to raise rates, we're not going to lower rates, we're not going to do more QE? Um, you know, two, two, a few two or three days before the market imploded, they said, oh, we're going to stop doing um, the repo, not QE, we're going to take the money back before they then went and did the biggest QE ever. So when they say they're not going to do yield curve control, they don't need to because bond yields haven't been going anywhere. Um, and it's interesting, isn't it, that when they say all these things and they say, well, you know, we're not going to do that, i.e. buy those longer-dated bonds, those bonds have risen and those yields have fallen because this is a market that likes the Fed to come in and do more. It likes low growth. It doesn't actually like true growth and true you know, future optimism coming out of things like the bond market. Well, they're not going to do it until the very moment they do. That's exactly right. And, you know, they, they yeah, we know that they're going to control this market. And ultimately, if you do believe in, you know, there's more fiscal coming, there's more monetary coming, so the two go together, so there's going to be more bonds released. They're going to have to buy up all those bonds. I think there's been, as I mentioned it yesterday, it's been a very, very bad year for foreign buyers of bonds, but they've stepped up to the plate, so they will do that. But they've got more room to because, you know, when people talk about the size of the monetary in the U.S., it's been big. When you look at the size of the Fed's balance sheet versus GDP, you know, Japan is still way out ahead. Europe's then second place of, of the of four that I'm looking at. China's slightly different. And then the US and the UK are roughly together, quite a way behind Europe. So they've still got more to do versus GDP. So there's a lot of, of, um, of dry powder there. Um, but then people say, well, it's the absolute numbers that matter. It sort of is. But remember, when the Fed is doing its QE, one unit of Fed QE is not as effective as one unit of Bank of Japan or ECB QE, if you sort of said they're the same value in kind of currency terms. 
Yeah, so diminishing impact in terms of the amount of growth that you get for every additional marginal dollar uh, of of policy activity coming out of the Fed. Look, you know the quote here. Uh, the Fed comes right out and say it says it in the minutes. Uh, participants, meaning FOMC participants, Federal Open Market Committee, also judge that in order to continue to support uh, the flow of credit to households and businesses, it would be appropriate. Uh, over coming months for the Federal Reserve to increase its holding of Treasury securities and agency residential mortgage-backed securities and CMBS uh, at commercial mortgage-backed securities at the current pace. Yeah, I mean, they basically said QE infinity, haven't they? So kind of it's open-ended. And they're changing their inflation mandate. They want their inflation to run hot, not cold, because they've yeah. been failing to get there. So they want to kind of go over it. Because the point here is there was always this hard limit, which is a bit silly. I mean, every central bank is sort of taking these hard limits, but, and, and then we're supposed to get nervous if we go above 2% or 2.5% or whatever it is. What you really want is go above it, knowing that theoretically you can pull back from the brink. Now, this is where the big debate comes, is that can they, if they really create the sort of inflation, which is not the pernicious inflation that we, a lot of people argue is not in CPI figures, but is in our real lives. But if they create that, that sort of inflation that, you can see it everywhere, sort of 70s style, but that was more demographics in a way in a structural system. But if they create that, can they dial it back? Um, I think that they can't dial it back, but I think the market will by having you know, one of those bad moments. But that sort of inflation, I still think, is, is quite some, down, some way down the track, um, because I think what we're seeing here, as I mentioned yesterday, the inflation we're getting at the moment is a combination of people coming out of lockdown with maybe savings that they're now spending, plus there's still a lot of bottlenecks out there, uh, which have been causing these, these kind of flashpoints of inflation. But I don't think this is all pervading inflation that lasts. But I do think in 12 months' time, assuming we get the fiscal, assuming that we continue with the monetary, which is unfortunately the MMT that we don't really like, um, then yeah, I mean, that, that dynamic could easily change. Yeah, and I think the news flow here basically is the Fed reaffirmed their position to continue to support markets at whatever level uh, it takes. You know, it's interesting talking about inflation. Inflation, of course, is defined as a sustained rise in prices uh, across an economy rather than just these micro pockets uh, that are being caused, as you suggested and we spoke about yesterday, uh, by these unusual dynamics that are frictional or transitional. That's not what we typically think about when we think about broad-based Inflation. I'm curious, Roger. One of the things that gets talked about uh, a bit is the federal. Uh, the the Fed actually has a target of two percent uh, inflation. They use the PCE metric to measure that. The the idea is that there's this uh, there's this kind of symmetric targeting, which means as it stays below the target, it can then rise above the target. The Fed will tolerate it running a bit hot, so that it has, on average, on balance. Uh, a position that comes close to that two percent target. What are your thoughts there? Is that something that's significant? And how do you think about that? It's, it's significant in that what it means, it gives them the leeway to say, and if we get to 3%, don't worry, we'll, we'll keep going with this, 3% is fine. Because you know, what, what is it? You know, we're in this world of ever-increasing debts. Now, in a world of ever-increasing debts, the only real way out of this without, um, without instant pain of default is if you can inflate them away. So you want inflation. The problem is here is that what sort of inflation do we get? And, and it's kind of inflation or reflation. What you want is reflation where real wages go up. Actually, nominal wages go up and, and debt levels stay static. You know, this is what we saw in the 1970s and, and to a lesser extent in the 80s. You know, you've got a mortgage on a house that's, let's say, your house is worth 100,000 and you've got a mortgage of 80,000, but then house prices double, you still got an 80,000 um, mortgage. And if your um, wages have doubled, then it becomes easy to face. You inflate your debts away. But isn't the danger right now that we can see out there is that we get inflation, not reflation, 
We're in a world where automation and the concentration that we're seeing that's represented by these FANG stocks is that we're seeing displacement of jobs, not integration of jobs with technology. So what we're going to see is, and, and you know, we, we saw this in the US, is that it took until 2015 for real rate wages, the median real wages, so affecting people on the street, the real world, um, for their wages to overtake the 2008 level. And we could find that for the majority of people, the real wages remain relatively static, whilst we start to see inflation pick up. That's a real negative. That's going to increase the disparities that we've seen, the inequalities that we've seen. And that's a kind of stagflationary environment. So I personally still feel that we're one, I'm not saying we're going to get that inflation, but we're one inflationary um, spike away from a deflationary bust because you get proper inflation that destroys you know, people's ability to pay off their debts. Then that's going to create more um, kind of economic wreckage going forward. The big problem here or the big difficulty here is how do you price that? Because if yields are being held by yield curve control, along the, all along the way, interest rates and yields out to 10 years are below 1%, kind of that means that you can borrow an unlimited amount. But what we also know is that those who can't afford to borrow have very, very um, expensive rates. Those who don't need to borrow but have loads of cash can borrow almost unlimited amounts of nothing. So you've got that. And how do you solve for that? And so far, you know, what the Fed has done is that and you know, the Fed is not able to um, it can only lend, it can't spend, it can't direct it. And what we've talked about through the last six months is that fiscal packages and the monetary packages are not being targeted into the areas that need them, which is why you're still seeing this massive disparity and inequality. Yeah, Roger, so much to talk about there. You know, these uh, policy actions are tools that work in the aggregate. And that means that, as you suggest, they don't necessarily find their way uh, to the parts of the economy that need the most. And that is per perpetually the paradox. We've talked about this before from an income inequality perspective, uh, the idea that uh, Fed policy has, in fact, uh, had the impact of inflating asset prices. The wealthy have gotten wealthier lots of people still suffering in this economy. Let's talk a little bit about yield curve controls because we've talked about it uh, yesterday, but just to understand what it is and why it's so significant. You know, when the Fed expands its balance sheet, it's buying bonds, uh, obviously uh, pushing down yields in the process and stimulating the economy. Yield curve controls, I think it's fair to say, represent a, a kind of escalation in the, uh, in the tools that the Fed is deploying in terms of the size, power, and level of intervention in the economy. Yield curve controls mean intervening at every point in the curve to keep that, to keep that curve looking the way the Fed believes it should look in order to optimize for the variables that are consistent with their statutory mandate, uh, which of course are, are inflation uh, and stable prices. Now, that said, very difficult for a central bank to be, this is the point we were mentioning earlier, to precisely target and know in advance exactly the way that that is supposed to work. It looks a little bit more uh, like a command and control economy uh, in the uh, Soviet sense. Now, now, obviously, they're not quite comparable. They're not even remotely comparable. But one must feel a certain sense of pause about that level of intervention and the potential uh, side effects that come with it. It's a very powerful drug. And when you administer powerful medications, you get powerful side effects. I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of things that we've been seeing in this. And we can see it over the last decade. And it's you know it's been more it's been clearer in Europe than it has um, in the U.S. But what was fascinating is that bond yields in Europe tended to fall ahead of or in anticipation of QE, and then once you got QE, bond yields tend to stabilize. And what that was was effectively was it the market front running um, the, the the central banks, or was it? And I think it's more realistically it was actually bond yields were falling because growth expectations were falling. 
So you got the QE. When you got the QE, then the expectations of future growth picked up. So actually, during the period of QE, when the central banks were buying bonds, yields actually stabilized. And you know, going forward, you know, we, we saw bond yields coming off aggressively into and through, obviously, the pandemic at its worst in March. But they're stabilized out of there, even though now we're actually seeing bonds being bought. So there's that element to it. So yes, we have a distorted market, particularly the corporate bond market. We have a distorted government bond and corporate bond market. But what yield curve control really is, and I think this, you know, the way to look at this is there is a point in a world where you've got excessive levels of debt like we have today when interest rates, market rates, can destabilize um, the asset price matrix. And maybe the closest example of that was 2018, where we got for a short while yields going up, people getting quite excited. This is real growth. You know, we had that at the end of 2017, caused Volmageddon. We then saw it again at the end of um, 2018, 3.25%, rang the bell on the equity market, it sold off. Then we had the misstep from the Fed raising rates in December, which caused the air pocket into the end of that year. Now, I think yield curve control really now for, for the US is to stop that, because ultimately, central banks, when they're doing QE, when they're intervening, what they're really trying to do is bring asset price volatility down of, of all asset price, FX, equities, rates. So they don't want to get to that point. The problem now is that if it's 3.25% in uh, December of, or in late 2018, what's that level today? Is it 1.6? Because it's going to be a lot lower because we've now got a lot more debt, the government level, the corporate level, and at the household level, the savings are going up at the household level. So that whole fragile structure that was in place for the last decade and building through the last decade has just been given steroids which means that we probably can't let yields along the curve rise to a point which causes them to roll over. And that's the conundrum. It's the yeah. problem we've got in Europe is that if yields rise a little bit in Europe, it blows up Italy. But if you don't let yields rise, you blow up the banks. And we're starting to see that. You know, US banks today were down nearly 2%. European banks underperforming, even as an asset's making new highs, with yields and yield curves falling. That's the problem. Yeah, there's a lot of debt. There's a concern about growth and earnings, uh, and uh, and rates keep falling, which means net interest margins at those banks are falling. You know, as any good Austrian will tell you, uh, even the most well-intentioned central bankers uh, are not able to create an optimal condition on an ongoing basis for business. It just doesn't work that way. It's too complicated when you're targeting something. Uh, other things always get out of balance, out of step. There's always this systemic feed through uh, of the side effects from the policy. And I'm curious whether you think we're reaching a potentially critical point with aggregate levels of debt rising, with uh, debt to GDP uh, ratios rising, and with the fact that yields have just been so low now for so long, uh, on and off on an ongoing basis since uh, you know 2008. Well, I mean, I've, I've sort of, you know, I've been, I've always been arguing about um, the very, very weak structural economy, and you know, I, I was, but I classed myself as an absolute perma bear for a very, very long time until kind of the revelation in 2016 that this was no longer fundamentals but flow-driven market, and so, you know, it's that that kind of relationship between bond yields and equities has now changed. But I still think that this is, you know, this is still an environment where we're relying on the central banks continue holding, you know, watching our backs. We've talked about this many times before, that this is an environment where um, what the equity market likes is no growth with the explicit support, really, of central banks. Now, as we saw at the end of 2018, when you get potential reflation, you get very quickly to a point where yields become unsustainable with the equity market. So they've got this problem. The real problem with, with the, these is that central bankers are actually not much better than any of us you know, at, at predicting the future. And I think, and I'm probably misquoting this, it's from a few years back, and I think it was Cameron Crees 
coming across of, I think he's the macro man, he said, how good is the Fed at predicting the most important thing, inflation forward, 12 months forward, and on a scale of minus one being 100% wrong to plus one being 100% right, their actual, you know, their predictions of inflation in one year's time compared to inflation in one year's time was minus 0.67. So it's not 100% wrong, but it's not far off. And this is from probably, you know, an organization that should have the best forecasting skills. So if they can't be correct themselves on one year forward inflation, you can't really trust them to be that accurate on anything. So this is really kind of a, you know, it's, it's kick the can and hope, which is the reality of it. And it feels like it's sort of working. But the biggest problem here is if you keep yields low across the curve, 10 years out, things like this thing called term premium, which is kind of a, a prediction or an embedded inflation expectation, currently negative, has been for a couple of years. If you continue to keep 10-year growth expectations near zero, then why would anybody want to invest any money on uh, invest on productivity? Because it's telling you your return will be nothing. So you continue to, you continue to put the money you get into share buybacks, into asset prices, non-productive asset prices. Future growth remains low. Future volatility of money, so velocity of money, remains negative or falling, which is what we've seen for the last 10 years and has accelerated in the last few months, which basically means that we're just accelerating the current trend of future growth expectations will be worse, future debt will be worse, and that's our children who will have to pay for that unless you believe that we can painlessly go through this concept of debt jubilees and MMT, which I don't believe we can. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, it just has the, the feeling of a magical thinking panacea uh, that, uh, that there's some particular new policy action that can wipe out the side effects from the previous policy action, right? It does feel a little bit uh, optimistic. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of these things where if you just said, oh, yeah, it doesn't matter, we'll, we'll just spend. In fact, if you actually looked at the market right here, right now, if you come to land on Earth in the last few days, you'd go, do you know what? The best thing for asset prices is a deep recession. It's preposterous. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. But that's actually what asset prices are saying is that, you know what, we don't want growth. What we want for asset prices to rise is a really, really poor economy and a really, really poor prospects for the economy. If interest rates are at zero, what, which basically says there's no growth, why is it that the part of the capital structure, the equity market, which prices growth, is soaring to record highs? You know, it's gone, it's, we've gone through that point, you know, for a long time, from the 1980s, through to 2008, you had interest rates coming down, which was a discounting mechanism for equities. It was good. Future prospects were getting better. Then around 2008, which was 4% um, on the 10-year yield, it continued to fall. It flipped that now falling interest rates wasn't a boom for equities going forward in terms of growth. It was actually now a indication that growth going forward was worse, but it was being supplement supplemented by central bank liquidity and being able to borrow at zero and growth now starts to fall. So effectively, equities have reversed. Equities are now going up, not because of growth prospects, because of flow fundamentals. So fundamentals no longer drive equities. Flows drive, equi flows drive equities. So it's all the reverse way around. You know, a lot of people have been buying bonds for capital gains and, uh, and, and you know, almost like equities and, and equities for income. Um, it shouldn't be that way around. Yeah, it's, it's surreal. Uh, bonds for capital gains and, uh, and stocks for yield. 
you know, we've lived in this world for so long. It's, to a certain extent, it feels like we've almost adjusted to it. The phrase good news is bad news, bad news is good news has been in such popular currency since 2008 that no one bats an eyelash any longer. But with the continued, uh, with continued policy support at this level and with continued buildup of debt, one begins to wonder at what point the tipping point Maybe. And also, even in, in the current moment, before there's a tipping point, about the potential impact on income inequality, on the job market, on the ability uh, of people, uh, especially younger people in the economy, to have the kind of prospects when they uh, got out of school that we thought that we would enjoy. Uh, and so it really is a, a, a philosophical question. It's a political question. If there's one thing right now here, we're in the middle of the uh, Democratic uh, Convention. Uh, you know, if there's one thing that populists on the left, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, Congresswoman, uh, on the one hand, and, and President Trump agree on, uh, it's that there's too much inequality uh, in America. There's too much income inequality and that the people who are at the lower end of the spectrum have suffered the most. It's interesting to me that we are at a point now where populists on the left and on the right both seem to agree that things are in uh, parlous conditions. That is uh, something of a bad sign. It's a slow indicator, uh, but it's one that would uh, would uh, flash across my warning screen. Yeah, look, I think, you know, not trying to say anything about the election, but let's talk about what there will be similarities of and what the similarities will be. Same in the UK, because the Conservative Party, who, you know, they're, they're normally against extra spending, but they've already done this, they've said they're going to do it, and they are doing it. And Democrats and Republicans, they are going to go down the route of ex fiscal expenditure. So, you know, you can focus on what will be the similarities. Now, yeah, we're all going to focus on the differences, but these are the things that will be similarities. We are going to get fiscal expenditure and we are going to get um, more um, central banks buying of those bonds. Uh, it's happening everywhere. So we can expect that. And I guess the big question is, does it become, you know, when does it become inflationary? Does it become inflationary? We're still in a deflationary structure onto which we're, we're placing something which has more chance of an inflationary impact than pure monetary, because the pure monetary was just going into the stock market, you know, going into asset prices, uh, and then non-productive. Whereas fiscal, you can actually target that. Governments can say, we're going to build um, distribution networks. We're going to rebuild some of our, our roadways. So it will go into spending. But does it happen in the Japanese way, where you're spending on building roads to nowhere and stadiums you know, for populations that can't fill them? That sort of thing can happen. So you get short-term inflation, but ultimately it's a short-term pop that pushes down back into a deflationary spiral. And the big risk here is that it's not true reflation and it's inflation, which hurts the, the, man, on the man and woman on the street more than it helps and lifts wages. Then it's going to be that form of inflation. So inflation can still hurt. They'll suppress yields. Normally it's yields follow inflation or inflation expectations and call, call the bell on the equity market. But if they hold those down, you know, what is going to be our, our signal now? What's going to be? It's going to be something like wages remaining weak, which means the 401ks don't get the flows that they need coming in. The large section of the corporate sector still can't do buybacks because their income, their, their income cash stream is still very, very poor. You know, what is the equity market right now? It's five stocks which can do buybacks, and the sensible money has followed those stocks doing buybacks because there's fewer of them compared to where we were a few months ago. So it's, you know, inflation is probably the one thing that will cause this market to roll over, but they'll let it go hot. There has to be inflation that hurts people, it's stagflation that will be, I think, a real killer. Yeah, stagflation is always the ultimate nightmare. You know, Roger, as you talk about inflation, uh, you talk about some points that uh, make me think about the fact that we really are living in uh, two different Americas, two different United Kingdoms. We have people who are fortunate enough to be able to do their jobs by Skype like we are right now. Uh, and we have people in the manufacturing sector uh, who are getting really hurt by this. Uh, we had a, a print come out today, the uh, Philadelphia Manufacturing Survey, uh, below expectation 
below consensus range, below last month. Exactly the same story, second verse, same as the first. We saw it with the Empire State Manufacturing Index uh, coming up earlier this week. So it really is, once again, a tale of people who are benefiting. Listen, if, you're, if you've been uh, receiving stock buybacks, if you're the beneficiary of that, it's a great time in America. For a lot of other people, not so much. Yeah, and look, I mean, you know, that Philly number, it was, it was low expectations, but it's still actually, it was 17. The range has been minus 40 to plus 40 for the last 10 years. Um, so it was, it was they missed expectations, but it was a good number on six year view. So, you know, that, I think that the, sort of the data, some of the data misses have not been maybe as bad as, as that kind of headline view suggests. Yeah, yeah that's right. I, I just use but, it as a metaphor for Yeah, but, but I mean, but the point is, you're, but the point is that all these, firstly, the data, as we know, is there's a volatility in the data because we still really don't know if the data is, is consistent with the previous 10 years. Are we still comparing apples with apples? You know, a lot of these are survey data. And then the second point is that how much of this is still purely down to the massive amount, massive amount of government support? And so, therefore, you need to continue rolling that government support. Are we going to do that ad infinitum, another two trillion for the next six months, then another two trillion? Because there's another two or three trillion now. In six months' time, we'll be going to, well, if we let this roll off, there's going to be another X million unemployed. Same thing in the UK. So we have to do it again. Can that continue? I mean, some people think that we are in the world of infinite QE and therefore in infinite fiscal, so we can. Uh, I'm of the view that there's, there's some people are going to try and let it roll off and, and we'll realize there's got to be a reset. But, you know, most of these companies, the U.S. actually has always been very good at rebounding from things. Big problem for developed markets is that this has been particularly bad for the services sector and the most developed economies have the biggest services sectors. So they've had the biggest relative pullbacks to where they were, which means when they rebound, they should have the biggest rebounds. Problem is, as we all know, not all those jobs are coming back. Same here in the UK, same in, in parts of Europe. So yeah. it's, you know, when the whole thing we talked about is when you get the recovery, do we rebound to where we were or somewhere below then? It will be somewhere below there, which is where the insolvency story comes in, but it's death by a thousand cuts. It's not a sudden move. That sudden move in that we saw this year shouldn't be repeated. It should be, you know, maybe a one, two year move. Yeah. Uh, you were one of the first people to start talking about the uh, inverse radical style recovery, where you basically you you drop from a baseline, you come down, then you come back up, and then it goes straight at a level that's somewhere below where it was prior. Uh, though no one knows exactly what that gap looks like. Look, you know, not a great time in the services sector. Obviously, restaurant workers, massive sector here in the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, people have been hurt pretty dramatically, and just in general, be that as it may, the points you. You made not a great time uh, in the U.S. for manufacturing. hasn't been for decades, and also people are getting hit now because manufacturing, industrial production tends to be one of the swing factors uh, when economic growth declines. Uh, people make layoffs there first, and also just challenging conditions under COVID for people who are working in factories. Uh, obviously, the, sometimes those jobs are not in wonderfully ventilated spaces. You have people working closely together on a line, physically moving stuff. A more difficult time. Uh, certainly than you and I are having here uh, doing this call on Skype. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is, you know, we have seen this, this we, we all thought there'd be some big changes. And then I think we also dialed back and said, actually, you know what, we all kind of want to go back to a workplace. But then the employers said, actually, we don't need you all in the workplace. And now we've sort of, right. there's this hybrid model that's starting to come through, but it's a hybrid model which has some big impacts. And one of the, the most interesting things I thought from, from Tony Greer was actually what we talked about, because remember very early on, we got, um, got sort of people said wag, wag the fingers out of when we said that one of the things coming out of this will be people moving out of cities. And I was interested to hear from him how he said, I'm seeing it. People are moving out of New York to where he is on his Atlantic Beach, just outside New York. 
yeah. they're young people as well as old. And look at lumber prices in the US. They've gone through the roof. I'm constantly getting bid, you know, missing out on bids for, for properties because people are coming out of London. Now, I'm hoping that this will be short-lived. I'm fairly certain it will be. But it actually has been a change which people have embraced, and it feels like they're embracing it slightly more than I expected and for a slightly longer period. I do still think that everything will adjust. And if office spaces aren't used in the city of London, then it will become cheaper housing or become housing and stuff like that. So it will adjust. It won't be very, very dramatic, but I have still been surprised at some of these shifts, which are not as glacial as I thought they would be and not as small as I thought they would be. They're much more profound than I expected. So you can see that there is there are some big impacts um, in some of the developed markets from this. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be short the put on commercial real estate in London or New York. No, and it's it's going to have it's going to be an adjustment period. But at the same time, what we've got to remember is that you know, a lot of these companies are locked into multiple year deals, so they can't suddenly go. No, you know what? We're going to walk away. They won't do that. But there will be a new model, and it will evolve. This has been a period of concentration and acceleration in in a lot of the ways that we do things. And whilst we will dial some of that back, you know, it's probably instead of three steps forward, two steps back, it's probably three steps forward, one step back. So we've moved more in that direction than we would have expected. Um, but it is going to have some big changes on the margin, um, undoubtedly. And unfortunately, it's in the, the middle cohort. It's in the, the sort of the, you know, the, the big workers cohort that's getting impacted, which is where we're getting the inequality from, the holding out of the middle class effectively. Yeah. Roger, substantive conversation here today. Final thoughts. Um, so I'm still, you know, for me, it's, it's all about this disparity in the, in the, between the dollar, the XY, which is the euro, and the rest of it. If the euro starts to, to kind of pull back a little bit, it's, well, actually, no, let me take that back one step. It's not so much if the euro will pull back, it's if the ECB and the Bank of Japan feel they need to act. They won't need to act if the euro pulls back, but if the euro breaks 120 with any kind of momentum, I don't think it will be long before these guys come back because it's very clear that it's starting to impinge on some of the performance of asset prices. And remember, the US has got its inflation target. Dollar's going down or has been, but only really versus the euro. They're going to be quite happy that inflation targets might be easier to hit. In Europe and Japan, they'll be going, good Lord, how are we going to do that? So it's a case of, you know, I keep on going back to this. Who has the biggest bazooka? You don't need a bigger bazooka in Europe and Japan to have an impact on your currency. What's the point where the ECB and the Bank of Japan squeal? That, to me, is the most important question for currency markets, and therefore inflation, gold, silver, all those sorts of things. Um, it's a bizarre world. Everybody wants a weaker dollar, but everybody else wants their currency to be weaker too. So you can't have both. And where's the balance between the two? And they start to offset each other. And I think we're close to that for the euro and the yen now. Roger, just to go one level of detail deeper for people who don't follow this as closely as you do, what are the risks of a rising euro uh, from a trade impact, from an economic impact, and same with the yen? So I think it's simple, simply put that um, if you had global reflation, lots of global growth, you can tolerate a stronger euro because demand is picking up. And yes, you might, you know, your, your exports might be slightly hit, but global demand is picking up faster than the currency is moving. If you're in a world where you've got inflation but not reflation, we're not seeing global growth, and your currency is strengthening, it means that your exports are being impacted. And Europe is, the European equity market is reliant on 70% um, of its revenues, I think, are exports. Now, some of those are intra-Eurozone, so therefore not impacted by currency, but emerging markets are an important part for Europe. So if you get a stronger euro, if you get a stronger yen, and, and you're getting no real growth increases, you're just getting inflation, not reflation, it's bad. And you can see that, as I said before, in this last leg of the euro going higher, the S&P has been significantly outperforming 
the euro stocks to the point where the S&P is near a new all-time high on that ratio. Now, currency adjusted, it's not so bad. So that's one thing to take into account. But if I'm sitting in Europe, my equities aren't performing that well, down 1.5% today at one point. So you don't want your currencies to move too aggressively. And I think Europe and Japan, the, the authorities there, will be thinking, okay, the world is looking better than it was, but we've got a relatively worse position. The euro could move too far, too fast for us. Do we have to do something about that? Yeah, very well explained. Professor Roger Hurst, as always, thanks for joining us. Good to speak to you as well. Thanks very much, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.